And I just don't think there's enough focus on people with underlying mental health issues that are exacerbated. And for some people, it because it's the catalyst of what creates it is the alcohol or or marijuana or XYZ or mushrooms, right? Like we got to be really, really careful because there's a lot of times they're just underlying dormant things. And when we add these out external chemical issues, external factors into our lives, it can create it. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast. If you're looking to hear stories of hope, inspiration, and turning your greatest adversities into your advantage, well, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Jason Lachance, and through my addiction recovery and struggles with anxiety and depression, I dug into my passion of speaking with people who have transformed their lives. And my guest, Ken Middleton, he's the author of Bamboozled, How Alcohol Makes Fools of Us All. Ken shares some insightful knowledge on how alcohol has a huge disadvantage, even if you are not an alcohol abuser, to your physical health as you age. As well, we discuss how alcohol psychologically changes your brain chemistry and body and keeps you trapped in a never-ending cycle of mediocrity. And we debunk a lot of the illusions around alcohol use in general. Ken is a fascinating individual. Hear his story. Hear how an alcohol-fueled incident almost prevented him from ever getting married to his wife. And if you want more on Kim Middleton, click the link in the podcast description. Man, Ken, thanks for joining me on Knocking Doors Down. Jason, great to be here, my man. Absolutely. So excited. I'm so happy Shane put us together, man. I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Shane Raymer, we're talking about that sober guy. Of course, Shane was on the podcast a few episodes back. Uh, we're going to get into your book, uh, Bamboozled. I think it's a really amazing take on alcohol, alcohol culture, society. But I always start with what I think is so important for everybody. Three, thing, uh, three things you're gra- uh, grateful for today. Yeah, yeah. thought about that. Um, you know, just for the most part, uh, first of all, just being alcohol conscious or so- sober, what I call alcohol conscious, just feeling somewhat very lucky that I um, kind of stumbled upon it, right? When I did in my life, um, gracious for my family. I think, you know, this is natural, just the family that I have, and they're just so important in my life. And I think having great parents is so I think a lot of times we think that our parents aren't perfect, but there are a lot of parents out there could be worse. And my wife and I always talk about it, how even though our childhood wasn't great, it could have been a lot worse than it is. And just having good people to care about you makes a big difference in who you grew up to be. Uh, And then lastly, grateful for my wife, my wife, man, she's my best friend. And I actually was writing about it this morning about uh, my journey. And I don't think that I would have been successful in my sobriety or what I call alcohol consciousness if it wasn't for my wife. She was the person that when I was going through it and when I was um, trying to figure it out and needed someone there by my side to to do things with me, um, help me in my weak moments, she was right there. She made the decision to not drink the same day I did. And it's been almost five years now. And, you know, our friendship relationship got even stronger for that decision. And I tell anyone I'm the luckiest man in the world that me stopping drinking was the best decision I've ever made in my life. Second only to marry my wife. And I'm grateful for her. <laughs> that, hey, dude, I, I've had a kid. I've had I've had a few, as they say, relationships 
relation relationships in my life, you know. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and uh, and I know I've been that for some people. But you're right, choosing the right person uh, to partner with in life and and want to live up to that responsibility is so underrated in our society right mm-hmm. now i think when what we're seeing you know there's so much reflection and there's nothing wrong with being a good looking person but there's so much reflection on the outside and that's what could make a good relationship and it's just like no dude it, it's so insane i i we talk about it all the time where people the the decision making criteria they use for the spouse. And I always say the mistake and listen, anybody take this the way you want to, but I think sometimes the mistake that women make is they date the, the guy that's made the most money that, they, that makes them, and that's the problem or that's tall. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. Right. Like, <laughs> Hey, I'm five, eight, right. I, I think I'm a, five, a, a tall five, eight or five, seven and a half, but it is what it is. And for men, it typically is the, is the, the, the most attractive female that they have dated. That's the one they marry. And right. that is not a good decision-making criteria to choose who you're going to spend the rest of your life with. And it, to your point, Jason, so important, man. It can it can make or break, in my opinion, the success of the longevity of your life, depending on the person you make that decision to choose. Help or hurt it. I agree 100%. As the guy you're sitting there saying, pick the prettiest. I was, uh, in addition to my, my alcoholism, I've done work in the area of sex and love addiction because of, you know, my childhood trauma, being exposed to pornography at a very, very young age, you know, so I had that story a lot. And I think, you know, it's so important how you talk about your wife getting alcohol out of the way too. Um, because man, alcohol can mess up so many relationships, even good ones. Mm Mm-hmm. Jason, to your point, brother, I got to be on. We talk, we talk about it all the time. We've been together now for six years. We out of those six years, we've been uh, we haven't drank for four of those six years, roughly almost seven now. Um, and during the two and a half years that we dated and we drank, relationship was still good. So it's you know you know you still have something good there. But the only time we ever argued, Jason, you can guess when it was. <laughs> right. And to the point, we broke up for six months because we had a huge argument. And if you ask me now what the argument was about, why it started, I could not really tell you. But I do remember we were both very very drunk. It got very very heated. After we got to the point of being upset, things were said that weren't related to why we were arguing, but you can't take those things back. And next thing you know, we broke up for six months. And to your point, we may have never gotten back together because of that very reason. And we wouldn't be married now because of being drunk in the moment, being stubborn, being ridiculous and deciding that I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm not going to back down. And look what that could have made. That could, I could have missed out on my life partner because of that. So 100% alcohol will ruin great relationships without a doubt. Oh, yeah. And I got I pissed some people off one time in a meeting, uh, a 12-step meeting, uh, because I said, man, you know, I mean, for those of us that are in this, that are, are here that are alcoholics, I mean, it was the ultimate anxiety drug. And an old timer pulled me aside later, like, why would you say that in your share? I'm like... Because it's freaking true. It, 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 people go, oh, alcohol makes you do stupid things. No, 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 no. We already have these thoughts. Yes. Like, like, like <laughs> they're already to fly. Probably the stupid stuff that you said to the missus that I've said to people. It's, it's in there. It's but in we, there. but we lose any anxiety about the repercussions 
of said action. Like, mm-hmm. oh, the pretty girl, you know, probably be a bad idea to go home with her the next morning. You wake up, oh, oh shit, I'm in her apartment. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it just, it, it's true. Dude, it's so true, man. Like, I've done some dumb stuff drinking. But Jason, the thing that gets me, and, and I think about it all the time, like, and I, I have been... I've had, I mean, we've all had moments that we can't remember, like, oh, man, I kind of remember that. I don't remember all of it, but I've never been to the point that I'm like, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) Like, I always knew what I was doing. Like, was it a good decision? Did I know it was a little risky? Yeah, but I always knew what. So people, when they talk about T-Pain, was it Jamie Foxx, T-Pain, blame it on the alcohol? You can't blame it all (laughs) on the alcohol. Like, to your point, Jake, you knew what you're doing it was always in there you just use that as an excuse to do what you wanted to do um yeah and so i've, I've been in those situations and i've said dumb stuff and and once i stopped I, i'm happy because those moments have stopped happening in my life 100 oh yeah <laughs> you got me thinking of so many moments just by oh, saying that kid. i got oh. a few that i won't share on the podcast <laughs> but yeah there's there's been more than one uh, and I won't press to ask it because I uh, I think I've still kept a few stories in reserve here on this podcast. <laughs> but, um, you know, that building of relationships, though, you mentioned like with with your folks um, in I mean, who really does have the perfect child? Like, here's my opinion. If you had the perfect childhood, your parents didn't do a very good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was too easy, right? A little bit, a little bit too yeah. easy. Yeah, yeah, we'll just feed you everything. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you get a lot out of this podcast, share with a friend. And don't forget the archive of interviews we have. Bam Margera, Brandon Novak, Kat Von D, Charlie Sheen, Edward Furlong, Kelly Osborne. The list goes on and on of amazing guests that have been on the podcast sharing how they have found purposeful lives. Speaking of purpose, how about a lifestyle brand with purpose? 5150 LTM. That's right. Not only is it a lifestyle brand that can fit whatever it is you're trying to achieve in life, but they give back to the community. And you, the listener of Knocking Doors Down, get 20% off every time you shop at 5150LTM. All you have to do is use the code KDD20 at checkout and get 20% off. And how does 5150 give back to the community? Portions of the sales benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation. Their three amazing programs, the race to end the stigma, the race for autism, and the race to be drug-free. More on the Carlos Vieira Foundation, go to carlosvierafoundation.org. Did you have any discord with your parents and maybe some of the bonding and rebuilding of stuff there or... Well, you know what? It was just my mom. Right. Mm-hmm. And I like the, the LJ, honestly, as I share my what I'm grateful for, dude, I feel like I was extremely lucky. So, I, you know, I'll share a little bit just to be completely transparent. So my mom diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic when she was 21 years old, right after she had me. So she had my brother, she had my sister and she had me for whatever reason. It kind of s- triggered. I think it was always there because there, there's a, a history of um, um, psychological issues with my family. My mom's mom also was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. And so it was there, right? And so once my mom had me, it triggered it in her. And so she was in and out of mental hospitals, honestly, until the age of 20. How, okay. I was, I was nine. So basically 
for from about 21 to about 30. She was in and out of mental hospitals. She just wasn't fit to take care of us. She just was, she didn't have, not that she didn't want to, she didn't have the capacity to, the ability to. So fortunately, and I don't know what it just happened with age or happened with the um, evolution of the medicine that she was on, um, but by the time she was 30, she got to a point where she was fairly stable and my brother and my sister and I were able to live with her and we could go live with her. My father never met him, never was around. Mm-hmm. Typical story, boohoo, whatever, like he wasn't there, but my my mom was there, right? It is what it is. So before I lived with my mom, Jay, we were um, staying in and out with my great grandma and my my aunt. So they took care of us. There was kind of my mom, but my mom would come visit but I went to go live with her. And I just say this to say, say this. So paranoid schizophrenic in and out of hospitals was never the best mom in the sense of didn't really discipline us, didn't really teach us anything about going to school, didn't really like give us all the lessons that the parents should give. But man, when I tell you this woman loved us more than anything she could love, like she put us before anything, before herself, anything like if we wanted new clothes, we got it. If we wanted Nintendos or Segas, we got it. If we, anything we wanted, we got, and she went without. And I will tell people, I grew up poor. I didn't grow, we didn't have a lot of money. Like my mom, God, my mom, I think she made $5.85 an hour and $8.7 an hour, worked 60 hours a week at a Butterball Turkey Factory. But when I tell you people didn't know we were poor because my mom, every dollar she got, she gave us what we wanted. So I tell people like, was my childhood great? No, but my childhood was fine because I had the one thing that was important was a mom who loved me. That's all, as long as your, your parents don't have to be great, but they, if they care about you enough, that's what matters. So I, I no issues with she didn't drink. Not a lot of my family members drank. Honestly, when I went to college, I started drinking at 19. She was super afraid for me because we didn't really grow up with people drinking hardcore. Well, I will tell you this. This is and this is why part of like my understanding of alcohol and how why I wrote the book is because in my family, it was two dichotomies we're drinking. Either we had people who never drank, they just didn't drink at all. Or they were alcoholics. Like was it that they they automatically associated if you drink consistently, you are going to become you will be an alcoholic. Like there is no in between. So for me, in my mind, I was like, all right, from the country, families kind of ignorant. They don't really know you can drink and be fine. Just because you drink doesn't mean you're an alcoholic. So in my mind, when I started drinking at 19, it was as long as I'm not an alcoholic. I'm okay because my family was thinking, oh, you're an alcoholic. I mean, no, I'm not going to be an alcoholic. All of they're like, oh, you're going to be in the, you're going to be poor. You're not going to make any money. I'm like, no, my boss's boss's bosses drink more than I do. And he's the VP of our company making $400,000 a year. Right. So if this guy's drinking and he's fine, I, I, I'm going to be fine too. So for me, I always, I like initially the thought process was as long as I'm not an alcoholic, Drinking is okay. My family just doesn't really get it. And there was there were no issues there. But it, you know, we'll talk more later. But that was part of what kind of changed, like not changed, but what created my view of drinking and why I never thought I had a problem until I kind of did have a problem <laughs> at some point, right? That's how it usually right. works. Yeah. Uh, and I just kept going after I recognized the problem. So that's I think the difference between the addict and the person that might just have a uh, be abusing a substance, so to speak. But uh, but you said that, you know, I can really resonate, Kim, with what you were saying, though. Um, 
you know, I had, before we recorded, talked about my dad being an addict, uh, primarily mm-hmm. methamphetamines, uh, truck driver, you know, very, very hardworking man. But I, you know, in that age when everybody started drinking, maybe the high school, your junior, senior year, I was the guy that if I went to a party, I got people home. I didn't drink. And it wasn't really, yeah, it really wasn't until it was legal. Like I could legally drink at 21. I think maybe a few times before that I drink, but not, not really. Um, and it took quite a while before it became pro. It was about a good seven, eight years before it became like a problem. Um, wow. And I think it had a lot to do. I know I've heard you on some other um, podcasts and, you know, I want your take with this is, you know, you could label your childhood as traumatic, but you don't. And and for me, I think that there was because of some of my trauma that I had a victim mentality brain. And I realized that the more traumas that came up or came to the surface as my brain matured, I was looking to medicate. And I, okay. and I think so many people do. I mean, think about it. Like we were talking about, it's a social lubricant. It cuts the Absolutely. anxiety. Here you are. Oh, I'm out with my boss, but you know, he's a 400 grand a year guy. I'm just a guy making 65,000. I'm new. And, but, but then all of a sudden, Hey, we're buddies. Cause we're sitting here imbibing some spirits together and it, you know, it shifts it. So it's, it's a real social challenge. Ooh, how that out, man. And I think it's interesting. Well, first of all, I would say this, you, it's interesting that you didn't feel like it became a problem to seven, eight years, because if you didn't start drinking until you're 21, you're extremely lucky because I, I tell I, people this all the time. I'm lucky. I didn't start drinking until I was 19. And mm-hmm. I don't think it became an issue until I was probably like, probably my thirties, like 32, 33, 34, where I'm like, probably drinking more than I should on a consistent basis. But a lot of kids start drinking when they're 16. And, and the younger you are, the more it increases your chances of becoming an alcoholic exponentially because your brain is still so malleable at that young of an age. It's still forming. And when you put something that is that chemical in your body, it starts to change kind of your neuroplasticity and the actual chemical makeup of your brain. Like they talk about that's why is Oxycontin was so hardcore on people. Oh. The reason Oxycontin was so addictive because it actually changes the chemical makeup of your brain and makes you addicted and it's like you know you can't do it but you're not like if you start drinking at such a young age you can do that so you were first of all you were super lucky that you started when you were older um and the fact you didn't you know do any like it didn't become a problem until you're 28 29 i think that's just that's amazing but i think the parent the parental side of it makes a difference because it sounds like there could have been some genetics there oh that, yes Both that sides. makes a difference you know because it does you know, and I, once again, I feel fortunate because I, I don't, I don't think I had that. I think I, it, you know, I was just one of those people that naturally, if you drink anywhere from 15 to 19 years, the average alcoholic, I think if this is correct, is about 41 years of age. That's the average. Anyone that could, that considers himself having alcohol use disorder, about 13% of the population. And if you, if you, re-engineer that to when most people start drinking is between an 18 to 22 year age range. The average person drinks for 15 to 19 years when they start having the problem. Yeah. Um, and I've heard you as well on podcasts and I've seen you talk about the victim mentality about trying to get away from it. And I respect it, man, because I, I listen, I 
understand why people do it, right? When you've had a childhood of things that's happened to you, I I get it. Like you're like, you're trying to figure out something to stop the pain. So I respect it. But then the reality is you will never get over that pain as long as you're using something as a crutch to help you get past it. And it's the only way, and I heard you say it before, the only way to get over it is that, hey, yes, were you a victim? Absolutely, in some respects. Like things have happened bad to you and it's not fair, but the only way you're going to get past it if you say you're not going to let it take over you. Like I think there's a famous quote by Maya Angelou that says like, hey, I like I can accept the things that's happened to my past in my past, but I don't have to be reduced by them. And that is the truth of where it comes to where you have to fight against that victim mentality and figure out something else to get past it. And alcohol just is not the answer to it. No, no. Or like you're mentioning the Oxycontin because, you know, the the nonprofit I work for, we're primarily focused on the fentanyl crisis Um, and, you know, just. A substance in general, I don't care if it's alcohol, marijuana, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Look, you are totally jacking up your reward system and your brain. I mean, like you said, the neuroplasticity and the younger you do it, the more it is hijacking and changing the way it works and where it's connected to some of those past areas that maybe we need to work through the trauma, just as you were mentioning, it's going to block it. It's going to make it tough. And you're going to always be like, Ooh, you know, this memory from childhood that define that I let define me into a certain direction. I know for me, I I hung on to it forever till I went, this is bullshit. Like the things that happened to me. Okay. I was a kid. Yeah. I should have been protected, but Oh, well, these things happen and I'm not going to let the person that did victimize a child victimize adult me. Like, I got half my life left, I hope, you know, like I got a lot, a lot to enjoy. Yeah. And I just I I always want to be clear, like I am not in any way saying like, oh, like you shouldn't be you shouldn't feel sorry for yourself and get over. No, I'm not saying that because I don't know what it feels like. I have no idea what it feels like. And you got to do what you got to do. But I just I do respect the people that are like the only way I can get past it. I think what you just said is so great. That person victimized you X amount of years ago. Don't let that person keep victimizing you today. And you got to figure out a way to get past that. Knocking Doors Down by Carlos Vieira. Now available wherever you get audiobooks. I wasn't done partying and I didn't want the binge to end. I think I knew that when I finally got home, I'd have to face what I had done. And I wasn't ready to do that. Being responsible for my actions wasn't something I was looking forward to. I had abandoned my wife and baby, my family, and my business. I wanted to avoid the shame of returning to what I had left behind. Even though I was not yet going home, I wasn't sure I had enough resources to continue the binge. Click the link in the podcast description to find out more. It was a conversation I had that it kind of... I think I maybe pulled it from something and amalgamized it, but just like thinking about like the hero's journey, you know, and I'm Mm -hmm. a big Star Wars fan. And you think about like, you know, Luke Skywalker had half of him as the most evil dude in the entire universe. And he could and he (laughs) could have went that way. So it's the choice that we make with the pain that's presented to us. You know, it's like you making that decision, looking at at your wife and saying, babe, like 
do you remember our past six months splitting up? Like, yeah, this is what the problem is. It's it's not it's not us at our core. It, it's our behavior when we choose to bring the substance into our life. Without a doubt, man. And I, I think there needs to be more like speaking of my mom. And I think that's one of the, the lucky reasons that my mom, even though parent schizophrenia in and out of the hospital, not great. But my mom never drank alcohol like mm. she just didn't. And I just don't think there's enough focus on people with underlying mental health issues that are exacerbated. And for some people, it because it's the catalyst of what creates it is the alcohol or or marijuana or X, Y, Z or mushrooms. Right. Like we got to be really, really careful because there's a lot of times they're just underlying dormant things. And when we add these out external chemical issues, external factors into our lives, it can create it. And then the other side of it's just the reality is when you have the drama, emotional things you're dealing with, there is just no way you are going to be able to deal with it with those things in your life. I don't care. There's just not in the way that you should. There is it's just impossible. Um, and they just really needs to be more focused on that for people to say, you know, alcohol is fun. It's okay to do it, I guess, in some scenarios. But when you when you have stuff that you need to deal with, or if you have emotional instability and things that you're working through, alcohol is not going to help your journey to get past it. It will not. And it's going to hurt it. It's going to hinder you. It's going to make your ability to face it um, not where it should be. And there just needs to be way more like shit on that. I think in a medical professional, psychological profession, just in general. Yeah. No. And thank you for, for, um, for bringing that up, Ken. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I personal experience, my depression increased greatly. Uh, until I got sober, I didn't even know I had anxiety issues. Like mm. it's like, oh, what is this that I'm feeling? I've been, I felt this all along. Like talking to a doctor, I, I think you've got an anxiety disorder, huh? <laughs> like, oh, I always had <laughs> the drug that I could go to to self medicate, mm. and then seeing it, you know, firsthand. I have a friend when he relap has relapsed on alcohol, his bipolar disorder, same spikes. Um. You know, you talk about marijuana, like it's, it's, dude, Ken, it's not the joints that it was when you and I were going to high school and college anymore. Right. I'm you know? sure. And we've had these, these, some of these moms at the nonprofit that I work at, a beautiful lady who lost her son because he started as the high content of the THC at 17 and he had a psychotic break, died of a fentanyl overdose by the time he was 19. So he took it. He took the living share and standing correctly. He he smoked the joint or what have you, and that is what triggered the yes. psycho. I I have heard that happening to kids to the and that's exactly what I'm talking about. It it could either be dormant or maybe it's actually create. It scares me. It really mm -hmm. does. Um, that's when I listen. I drank it, but I I was always afraid of doing anything other than alcohol. Man, you're smart, I, dude. I was just afraid, man. I don't know, maybe because of my mom and what sure. I was just afraid of smoking marijuana. I was afraid of doing coke. I just, it just, it just scared me. I just, I remember. I always think about Lynn Bias, right? The Maryland yes. play. I don't know, and and that I, when I heard that story growing up, it always scared me so much. I was like, I will never do coke. I will never do shrooms. I would never do anything. I would drink alcohol because that's legal, right? That's legal. But other than anything, I was like, ah, because and to your point, 
way stronger now than it was mm-hmm. probably 20, 30 years ago. And I just I, I I fear for these kids that are doing these things at a young age because, you know, they don't even read you're so young, you don't have good decision-making ability at already. And then to introduce that into your life and your mind, and then for it to then change it, mm-hmm. it's really, really scary um, to people. So I, I just, and that's one of the reasons with the book, I, 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 I've actually started to really put a focus on colleges because I just want to educate students younger, like, Listen, I tell anyone, I don't demonize alcohol. I just, that's not my, I don't, I honestly, in my personal opinion, this is once again, my opinion, I think there's a time in your life when you should drink alcohol. I think it does help in some, there are some things that could help in your life with, but I think it's two things. One, you must understand the dangers of it and be aware of it and try to control it and make sure that you're using it in an appropriate manner. And then two, there's at some point in anyone's life, you should never drink again. There's a certain age I think everybody should stop because the 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 positive effects you think you're getting from it is greatly over or not is not over defeating the negative effects from it. There's just an age then that age I, I'll tell anyone is 40 years old. I think at yeah. 40, no one should drink. There's just no reason. It's like you're not getting anything from it. I honestly think it should be earlier that, but I just think at unequivocally at 40. Um, you should stop drinking. But for me, I want to focus on the younger kids because I just want to educate them. And the reason I wrote a book, drink if you want to. I just want you to understand what you're getting into when you're doing it. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people know that when they drink. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that's a perfect area to focus on. We, you know, we've seen so many different issues on college campuses and some of them are disturbing, you know, the 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 rapes that have happened and things like that. And I guarantee you, if alcohol was not present, none of this stuff would have happened. And I'm definitely not, I'm not attacking the victim at all. I am not saying so. I don't want people to misconstrue that or justify that. Oh, if that, whoever the, the victimizer hadn't been drinking, that would, you know, there's obviously a psychological issue there already, but I think it would clear it out of the way that they could deal with it. And I, I'm glad that you jumped back to that because I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, look at it. Like I, I, I don't, I'm, Hey, as someone that I'm a card carrying member of AA, when I go and talk to teenagers, you know, they're like, oh, it's going to be the same. Don't drink. And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you not to do anything. I'm just mm-hmm. here to tell you my life and yep. how things could go. That's it. Yep. And if and if you're at a party and you've had your third drink and you're like, man, I could kill someone for a fourth, you might want to start questioning if there's some propensity towards a problem later in your future. Absolutely, man. I just, for me, it's around education. Like I shared with you before, like in high school, in college, throughout my entire life, Jay, Jay, I, when it came to drinking, the only way I thought it was bad is if you're an alcoholic. So as long as you're not an alcoholic, you're okay. But there's all these other things that alcohol does and how it hurts your decision-making and how it hurts your ability to think holistically and how it causes arguments and relationships, all of these things that it can negatively affect you. And for some people, if you make the, 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 the biggest wrong decision, it could change your life forever, right? Drink, drinking and driving, potentially try to get accused of rape or raping somebody, just all of that. Um, I just want to make sure people are aware. So in the book, we do, ex- that's exactly what I do. It's like, I'm not telling you not to drink. 
not my place. I don't, I don't, if I don't care if you drink, to be honest with you, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share one, all this scientific data to show you exactly scientifically what alcohol is doing for you in every time you drink and what you're experiencing and what you experience over time. Two, to your point, I'm going to give you stories, analogies, parables. I'm going to w- w- show you here's two different scenarios that say one person was drinking and decided to keep drinking and how her or his life went. And here's someone else that was drinking and said, you know what? Maybe I've had enough. So they cut back and let's see how their life went. And you can see the divergence of those two people's path with both of their relationships with alcohol were not dangerous initially. And look where it got to. And then third, I'm just going to give you tools and tips to try to figure out how to not if you don't want to drink anymore and you want to live a life of alcohol consciousness, I'm going to help you do that. You take with that information what you will, but this is the purpose of you reading this book. Yeah. Well, and I need to get a copy just to, you know, I, I'm always intrigued by it. And I've, I've heard enough, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in listening to you speaking with other folks that I know and have a lot of respect for. And you bring up so many interesting, wonderful points, Ken, that. So, you know, I don't know if you've heard about, you know, harm reduction modalities for people, maybe if it's a different form of, you know, let's say they were a a heroin addict and they're coming off and maybe it's methadone or a thing called Suboxone that's used quite frequently for opioid addicts to to detox and then taper them off and hopefully live a sober life. And that's one of the things that I talk about it that that doesn't make sense to me, especially let's say it's like a 24, 25 year old. I'm not talking about like the 68 year old that's finally gotten off of opioids and, and, you know, it's like, okay, they take methadone, but like saddling any young person to a substance like forever, um, because it's going to always hijack a part of the brain, you know, people's misconception about alcohol, like, oh yeah, I was hung over. And then two days later I was fine. No, physically you feel fine. But right. those, but those poisons, and that's why people say, "What's your poison?" Mm-hmm. are still in your body, and they're still affecting your brain. The carcinogens, yeah. and I mean, you've done the research more than I have. They're still there. They haven't yeah. gone away. No, without a doubt. With this, I don't know a lot about the harm reduction stuff. I just, I've, I've, I've actually heard a little bit about it when I was watching the show Dope Sick. I don't know if you've seen that. Talking about Oxycon. Oh, it's so good. Right. Like Michael Keaton's character. Oh, my God. He did such a good job in that movie. Um, But the story was just um, sad, first of all, um, and then so real. But the Suboxone, I I think like that was I don't know what he got on, but he got on something where he had to be on it for a while. Um, I I, I don't know. I don't know enough about it to talk through it. it. And I guess your argument is that it it it. When you're younger, that's probably not something you would suggest people do because they still have time to change their mind. Like the idea of saddling into it. You know, we've started talking to to a few young people through work that, uh, okay, they went in for an opioid issue. They got treatment. They detoxed and through the detox so that you don't have like really crazy withdrawals because opioid withdrawals. Freaking gnarly. Crazy. Okay. Yeah. So they'll give you something like a Suboxone. It's usually a, a, well, what's the term? Sublingual. It's like a little thing you can put under your tongue. It dissolves, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually they taper you down so that it's it makes the withdrawal much easier. And then, you know, you can start to clear up that space in your head to do the work on yourself. Right. But there's people now that it's like they're being subscri- prescribed it and they're just staying on it. 
And and then yeah, we're hearing, uh, hearing like, yeah, okay, I don't want to drink. I don't want to go get, uh, str- you know, illegal opioids, but I sure have this Suboxone and I like, I'm wanting more of it, you know? So you gotta have it. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's just like those fears of this stuff, like as a guy that lives a sober life, like, Hey, let's give you a chance. You know what I'm saying? And I love that about your book. It's, 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 you're not telling people what to do. It's almost like the, Hey, give me 30 days of trying what I'm telling you here in this book, take it to heart, do the work. And if you think I'm full of shit, then go back to how you're living. I'm going to guarantee from the sections that I've read that I got a little advanced pieces of, they're not going to go back to living the life that they were before. That's what I tell. I like that. That's exactly. Now I will say my thought process typically is I need, I need you to give me 90 days, yeah. 30 days. Like they, people do the dry January and dry January is cool. And I think it's positive for people not to drink because you're going to see positive effects in 30 days. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it, but, but the, the sobriety or alcohol consciousness exponentially affects people. Right. So I always tell people, if you can give me 90 days, man, I feel great about that because after 90 days, if you're like, man, this isn't better. I'm going to go back to drink it. Then listen, I admit, your life is great. <laughs> I'm just letting you know, give me that. But, that, but that's it though, Jason, hundred percent, man. I just, I just want people to have the knowledge. I want them to have knowledge. I want them to understand what alcohol does. So, so, and then I give them tips to do it. And even in the tips that I walk them through, it's, it's, it's a four-step process called the meds, M-E-D-S. I can walk you through that if that's okay. Like what Please. they are. Yes. And even in the first step, the first M is for um, mechanical re-engineering. That's the very first step. And in that step, Jason, I tell people, don't stop drinking. Keep drinking while you're doing this. Because the very first step, mechanical re-engineering, it's about you educating yourself on what alcohol is doing to you. It's about you reading books like Bamboozle, you reading books like Annie Grace's This Naked Mind, Craig Beck's Alcohol Lied to Me, William Porter, Alcohol Explained. Like you reading those books and you reading about what they say alcohol is doing. And then you noticing, is it doing these things? Because I stopped drinking and I started reading and I started to think about all the situations that I was in. Your point about anxiety never made the connection of how anxious I was around people until I got alcohol. And then once I drink the alcohol, the anxiety went away and I started to feel like normal, right? And cool and whatever. But then what I didn't notice is then once I stopped drinking alcohol, the anxiety came back even worse. Mm-hmm. And I didn't make the connection of you think alcohol is making your anxiety better because it's subsiding it in that time. But what it's actually doing is decreasing your ability to handle anxious situations without it. So therefore, when you don't have it, your anxiety comes back even stronger than it would have been if you weren't drinking. Right. The next morning when I'm at work, because that, that I would get anxious at work because I'm hungover and I would be in situations where I wasn't drinking anymore and it was just too much for me. And I just thought that was part of the hangover. No, it was part of just the alcohol still affecting you in all the different ways cognitively that I wasn't making connections that I couldn't think just all the different ways. I want people to actually realize it. I tell people this all the time, craziest thing in the world. I never made the connection, Jason, that when I woke up at two or three o'clock in the morning from the night that I was drinking and couldn't go back to sleep, 
that that had anything to do with my drinking the night before. <laughs> I just thought it was because I had a problem sleeping. I was like, man, I can never go to sleep. I wasn't connecting that. It's the alcohol hangover that you're having. It's the dinorphins that are in your body because what happens is you get the endorphins from the alcohol that's trying to make you feel good. You have dinorphins, which is an um, opioid that's trying to get you back to homeostasis. It's bringing you down. You keep drinking. You keep getting endorphins from the alcohol that endorphins chemically are keep being released. You stop drinking at 12 o'clock because you're ready to go home and go to sleep. The dinorphins are still being released at two o'clock in the morning. So you wake up and you can't go to sleep because your body is overwhelmed with this negative feeling of depression. And then that's what makes people sometimes feel depressed after they drink because the opioids are a downer and trying to get you back to homeostasis didn't make that connection. So, so I want people to drink while you're reading bamboozle, you're educating yourself and then say, look, call bullshit. Are these things happening? If they're not happening and it's a lie, okay. But if it is happening, notice it, sit in the moment, understand it and say, is this how I want to feel? Is this who I want to be? Right. Because mm-hmm. I need you to be cognizant of that feeling. Right. Because now when you stop drinking, I want you to remember the comparison of what it feels like without that alcohol with the, like you got to have that comparison contrast. So that's mechanical reengineering. Don't stop drinking, be in the moment. That's the first step. Second is exercise commitment. The reason for me, exercise commitment is so important is two things. The very first thing you're going to recognize when you stop drinking is that you have a shitload more time on your hands (laughs) than you have before. I mean, it is the most, oh my God, it's like the craziest (laughs) thing ever. It's like, what was I doing with all of this time? Like I must've been, I wasn't feel like I was drinking that much, but you don't realize that pregame probably lasted an hour or two, right? Then you got the Uber to the bar. Then you got two or three hours at the bar. Then you got two or three hours home. And then you got the Uber Eats coming to get you. Bring it. So you got like an eight to 10 hour period of time that you now have to feel with something to do. So I tell people, the best way to feel that is with exercise. Like exercise is just something you can do from a time perspective that's just going to make you feel good. And the practical side of exercise is that it reduces your cravings. There's very few things that gives you that endorphin release or dopamine release similar to drinking outside of something natural like exercise. So not only pragmatically does it allow you to have something to do with your time, but it also gives you that endorphin release to reduce your cravings to make it pragmatic and it helps you not want the drink as much. The other side of why I love exercise commitment and why I think it's important, a lot of times I think people need a motivator to to not to continue to not drink. And I think one of the best motivators for someone to say, all right, this is a good thing is that physical representation of how things change. So when you exercise, whether you're gaining muscle or whether you're losing weight, it's going to be a motivator when someone's like, holy shit, Jason, what have you been doing, dude? You look great. Like uh, your skin is clear. You're like, you put some muscle on or like you lost some, like that right there, that's going to make you be like, okay, Maybe I didn't see it, but maybe this not drinking might be something that is is a so it's that it's that extra like motivating factor that I think helps people like physically. If you look good, you feel good, and if you look externally as good as you feel inside, it kind of glues it together. Oh yeah, I'm gonna cement that. Help cement that. I have old pictures of myself, and my face looks so bloated from how yeah. much I was drinking, and like I'm like, oh my god, 
Like I was, I was aging fast, you know, Dude, I, yeah. I will admit my ego for a 45 year old man. I still do go like, ah, oh, you've aged pretty well. And, <laughs> and not drinking for, it has tremendously helped. You'll see people and you're like, man, like, yeah, they've been drinking a long time because they're like 35 and they look like they're 45 or 55. And it's yeah. like, yeah, hard, hard life is what we call it. Um, <laughs> uh, the next is D. D stands for diet improvement. And there's two things around that. Same thing. So with the exercise, if you exercise, it's great. But if you're eating shit and you exercise, sometimes you won't see the benefit. So I've like, you got to eat good if you want to like look good, right? If you want that physical external representation of your internal change, you got to eat good to see the changes. The other side of that, there's a lot of good, healthy foods you can eat that helps reduce cravings as well. So like vitamin D, getting good vitamin D from your food makes good. Um, vitamin B12 folate is really good, like green leafy vegetables help with reducing craving. So by eating good food, it actually reduces your craving and make it like you not wanting to drink as much. And the last M-E-D-S part of the meds is success seeking. And for me, this is by far the most important part, the biggest part. So the, the concept of success seeking and why it's so important is that I tell people when you decide to stop drinking, and to become alcohol conscious, in my opinion, you've given yourself a precious gift. You have given yourself something that now allows you to overcome almost anything in life. As we shared before, when you are using alcohol as a crutch, your anxiety is bad. Any trauma you went through is bad. It's still there. And you are trying to fight to figure out how to overcome it. But the alcohol is you're using as your crutch. You don't have the emotional or cognitive ability to overcome those things. When you take that alcohol away, you've now given yourself the ability to overcome anything because you're not looking at something else to help you fix a problem. You're saying, I'm going to figure out how I'm going to fix it myself emotionally and then cognitively because you don't have alcohol weighing your brain down and, and messing with your newer transmitters so they're not hitting and their synapses aren't clicking as quickly. Your mental cognition is at a whole nother level. So why I say success seeking is so important because now now you have the ability to get over and to do anything. So you can now, because you're not drinking, you can sit at home and watch Netflix all day and watch Hulu all day and Amazon and waste this time. Or you can use all of this more time that you have and all of this greater mental and emotional ability to create goals for yourself that the previous version of yourself would have never been able to do. Yeah. You need to say, I like the prime example. What I did was say, my wife is Korean. I said, shit, I want to learn how to do, how to um, speak Korean because I could have never learned because, you know, we, we have an alphabetic character. So maybe I can learn something like Spanish or something similar. But when you talk about having the, the Hangul and the Korean alphabet, like when you have different characters, in my mind, that was way beyond. <laughs> I, I knew my drunk mind. There's no effing way I could have done that, right? But with my new alcohol conscious mind, I felt like that was a goal I wanted to give myself. So I started learning Korean, started to read, understand the characters and learn how to do it. And I was catching it. And it kept me remembering like, you know what? I'm learning how to speak Korean now a year, two years in. If I went back to drinking, 
I could never continue to do this because my my drinking mind didn't have the mental cognition to be able to handle such hardcore holistic thinking. So you got to give yourself a go, give yourself a big go that the pre-alcohol drinking self or your pre-alcohol conscious self could never do. And there's a great analogy that my man Jeff Graham from Back to Zero podcast came up with. And this is why this works for a success seeker and why it's that motivated to keep you going for it. Uh, it's called the wallet analogy. I didn't come up with this. I always give him credit. And I was like, when he said, I was like, dude, you're spot one. The wallet analogy is this and why this relates to success seeking and how it keeps you from going back to drinking. If you're walking down the street and you got a wallet in your pocket, you're walking down the street, you see this big dude, big muscular dude walking towards you. And he comes up to me. He's like, Jason, give me your wallet. Give me your wallet right now, punk. In your wallet, you just bought the wallet. You had it for, you know, like six weeks. You don't have anything in it. You $3 wallet from Walmart. You just bought it. Now, this guy's big. You don't know if he has a knife. You don't have his gun, but he's big. Could you fight him? Yeah. Would he probably kick your ass? Probably. <laughs> do you really want to get beat up for a $3 wallet, right? So yeah. nine times out of 10, what are you probably going to do in that situation? Hand the wallet over. Hey, hey man, here you go, brother. Good luck. Have, have a good yeah. day. Enjoy the rest of your day. Good, sir. <laughs> right, let, me get, let me get on out of here, right? Now, flip that situation again. You're walking down the street. You see the same big guy, Vin Diesel looking guy or the rock looking guy coming up to you, looking menacing. Hey, punk, give me your wallet, right? Now, this time in your wallet, you got, it's a wallet you've had since you were 22 years old. You got pictures of your family. You got your kids in there. You got your credit card in there. You got your driver's license in there. You got a bunch of money in there. You got notes in there of things you wrote yourself about what you're going to do in the future and what you like goals and stuff. You got stuff in this wallet that if this guy takes this wallet, you don't know if you can replace it, all this stuff. You got stuff that really means something to you. This is also this is the same big guy. You don't know if he's got a knife, if you've got a gun, might beat you up. Would you not say, you know what? Hey, man, I, I don't, I don't think I'm. A, you're gonna have to take this wallet from me before I'm gonna let you just get it. I'm not, I'm not gonna hand it over to you this time around, right? Yeah. And that's that's what success seeking does. Success seeking is you stuffing your wallet, which is you yourself investing in yourself with different skills and abilities and goals. That if you ever went back to drinking, you would lose all that investment. So it's if you taking that gift and doing something with it, that's creating a bigger and better version of yourself. That when you look back on who you were three, four, five years ago, you're like, holy shit, look how far. <laughs> yeah. And I can never go back to give it to that. So if anything ever makes me think about giving up my wallet, nah, it's not going to be that easy to take it. Like you're going to have to fight me for it because I ain't giving this to you without a fight. Yeah, no, I like that meds. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm gonna probably have to use that. I'll give you credit. No, no, use it all day. I heard it. I got it. Yeah, <laughs> use it all day, my man. I love it, dude. Yeah, man. A good way I like to put that to newcomers too is, um, you know, they'll ask me about, well, you know, like when are like the bad things gonna go away? And I'm like, oh, you're talking about the 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 things that you you know resentful actions. I'm like, well, we got to turn those into remorseful actions. And don't lose that memory. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, I did a lot of stupid shit. I'm remorseful over now, but I've made my amends and my apologies where I could, when I could, and to the best of my ability. Now I keep those things close because guess what? If I ever have this little sneaky thought, like where I've been mm. out at a barbecue and somebody's like, you want a beer? It happens in a nanosecond that it goes back to one of those memories that, like you said, giving that dude over that wallet of all those things, like gone. In an instant. 
So it's just like, nope, I keep those memories close. And sometimes like having a bad memory of like, oh God, I, I did that. Like it didn't matter that you were intoxicated. You still carried out said action. Yeah. It's like, ooh, yeah, I I I keep that close. But I like that wallet analogy. I know I, I love what you said too. Yeah, you keep those memories like, hey, I don't want to go back to that. I I can't, I can't, yeah. Yeah, because clearly you love and adore your wife and you don't want to be without her for six months or or no, period. So no, we we yeah, there were some bad situations there, my good man, without a doubt. So uh before we get to uh some fun random questions, how I like to uh uh, finish up and leave you with the final thoughts. I want to know about alcohol is not your friend. You're doing some great uh, stuff on y- the the site. Um, yeah. A-I-N-Y-F.com um, that you're putting up there. Yeah, definitely. So it was, that was the beginning of my journey in the sense that, so I stopped drinking um, uh, no, October was it October of November of 2018. And then I started ANAF on my um, 40th birthday in 2020, May 2nd, 2020. And really it was because I stopped drinking, I started reading and I started having all this education, started learning all these things. And like, man, I wish I would have known this when I would like, when I was younger and I wish that someone would have explained it to me this way. And then it just made me think like, there's a lot of people out there that don't know this information. So I started blogging and I created that book, that that um, blog publication, Alcohol is Not Your Friend, because classic, you think that alcohol is helping you. You think that it is making your life great. What you don't recognize is really holding you back more than anything else. It seems like it's friend. And there's some instances where it may even appear to help you. But in the long term, it's not going to allow you to be who you want to be. And so ANF is a medium publication that really is around science-based strategies and information, sharing with the consumer, sharing with the reader about, hey, this is how alcohol affects you. Here's what it does to you. Here's how it hurts you. And here are strategies to quit. Um, I open it up to anybody that wants to write. We have over 200 writers now that are that devote. They um, they uh, add stuff to the publication, which I greatly appreciate. Honestly, I don't even write stuff that much anymore. It's all about I just publish what other people wrote. And the, the, the thing for me is like, listen, I don't have all the answers. And what I share is what worked for me. I don't know if that's going to work for you. So therefore, I want all these other people collectively to give their point of view, because hopefully through us, our collective sharing, something will resonate with you that really helps you get over the hump that you want to. So I, you know, where I'm ain't if I hope it helps some people out there. It's a passion project. And I just, you know, I'll I'll do it forever because I just I really want to try to spread the word to as many people as possible. Oh, I know that it does. And I think that you just you take that onus and that approach Ken is the most empowering way you can. Whenever you talk to someone is, Hey, this is what worked for me. Guess Mm -hmm. what? The exciting thing when you do clear the alcohol out of the way and focus on these other things, like you mentioned in your meds approach, you get to explore how you want. You Mm -hmm. get the excitement of, of taking the compass of your life and the map and finding your own direction with it. It's really cool. I tell you. Everybody has their own way. That's why I, I don't not anyone's strategy. Like, you know, because they have some people like if you can moderate, moderate. Right. It, well, I can't moderate. That does not work for me. But if that's mm. something you can do, go for it. You know, there's there's some like the with the mocktails. There's there's different um, drugs you could take to get you out. I don't I think whatever works for you, you if it can stop you from drinking and and as long as you're happy, 
Look, if you like it, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I think as long as, uh, you know, getting the substance out of the way is the first thing. And then mm-hmm. if you, but you have, you want your life to change, you're going to have to continue to take action from there on. Yes. Out, which is absolutely what I love that you've uh, done with the book. And I look forward to reading the whole thing. Uh, Bamboozled How Alcohol Makes Fools Out of All of Us. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I just love the title, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, too good. Um, and you can get it on Amazon. I'll have the link for uh, the book in the podcast description. So uh, if anyone's interested or if you want to go to Alcohol is Not Your Friend, um, Ken's uh, website there where people are putting some stuff. But there really is a lot of great perspectives and information up there. So A uh, lot of it. And lastly, Jason, you can go to thebamboozledbook.com. Mm-hmm that way they can buy it for me directly and okay. cut out Amazon a little bit. I love Amazon, but give you both four more dollars by buying it for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Then we're so only going to put that link up. That's the yeah, only link in there. That'd be great. Appreciate it, homie. Thank you. you Everybody knows it. Amazon, but yeah, if you can put the D bamboozle link up. Yeah. The D bamboozle book.com. <laughs> All right. You got it. Uh, some fun, random questions. This is where we just going to have a good time, Ken. Um, uh, where do you go when you want to be alone? Uh, dude. Yeah. Um, probably right here. I wake up pretty much most morning. Well, my wife, my wife and I go work out now, but before we used to go work out in the morning, I, this was my writing time. I would wake up in front of my computer, typically five o'clock in the morning. And I would just like write for an hour. That's when, when I was writing bamboozled, my goal was to write 300 words every day. And it took me about 18 months to do it. And and like my writing time is like my zone where I just like I'm thinking I'm putting my thoughts on paper and I'm just kind of kind of planning out my life, if you will, through words. So right here. And that's a great tool, man. Like journaling, getting your thoughts out every day. It's great. Uh, If you could travel anywhere in time, but you had to stay there, where would it be and why? Dude, anywhere in time. So I didn't realize you changed it. I guess I should have known you changed these questions up. I was expecting the dinner question. Um, okay, so <laughs> let me think about this. Anywhere in time, but I had to stay there. What would it be and why? Um, God, where do I like to go? What would I like to do? God, uh, man, I guess, God, I guess, uh, yeah, I, I, the place that my wife and I really enjoyed living so i mean and we may eventually move there so i don't know the time but just the place is barcelona man we really enjoyed barcelona it's a good city good vibes there that um uh uh god what's that what's the market there uh the uh La Torombolas Market. Whole, yeah. I had the best crepes I've ever had in my entire <laughs> life. They're like, I dream about these crepes, Jason. They're unbelievable. Um, but Barcelona, man, I think right now, place that I would want to be, if I could be, money wasn't an object. And honestly, we 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 hope to move there one day. We If everything works out the way we think in the next maybe 10 years or so, but uh, probably Barcelona, just living yeah. there and enjoying, enjoying the sights and sounds of that beautiful city. Yeah, Barcelona is really nice. <laughs> yes, yes, that that is how they say it, right? Barcelona. Yeah. Barcelona. Yes. <laughs> I had to you get you. My that. my Spanish is bad as is when I was there. Gosh, it was like 20 something years ago, but uh yeah, everybody with the, the you know, it's España and a Barcelona. <laughs> the Barcelona. Yeah, I we so I was trying to learn Spanish as well and you got to learn the like Castellon, the Castellans, the, there's certain kind where yeah. they pronounce their THs as the like all the the s's as the 
And I was I was learning that for a little while. So yeah. I definitely know what you're talking about. We're just like, hey, I'm from Georgia, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give me a break, guys, please. Uh, what's something people might be surprised to learn about you? Maybe that you don't frequently share an interest, a hobby? Uh, I it's funny. I tell people I, one of my favorite movies ever. And when people find this out, they're they're so like, really? Um, one of my favorite movies ever is He's Not That Into You. Really? I watched, uh, it, but dude, I watched yeah. that movie randomly. I think I was out drinking one night and ended up hanging out at a friend's house. And we watched it the morning randomly hungover. And I just think that movie is a really good movie, man. I really <laughs> because I think it touches on so many aspects of like relationships where relationships aren't perfect. And there's not always a right, quote unquote, right answer. And you have to figure it out a long way, along the way. And it was really interesting for me because I resonated at that time with the, one of the characters who um, I can't remember which one it was, but he didn't want to get married. I don't know if it was the person married, dating. Um, uh, I, I can see her face. I can't think of her name. Anyway, he didn't want to get married. And then eventually she leaves him and then eventually end up getting married. That was me for the longest, dude. I never wanted to get married, thought it was stupid, thought I never wanted to do it. And then I eventually matured and grew up and got married. And I just think that movie is just just undervalued, man. It's just a really good movie that is very nuanced and complicated and shows how complicated life can be. So a lot of people don't know that's one of my favorite movies. So that'll be it. I dig it. Um, do you do you consider yourself having any bad habits still? Probably, hell yeah, dude. I'm, I know I got numerous bad habits, man. It's ridiculous. Like I probably eat too much food, man. It's just bad. <laughs> I, I just all right. So we were talking about the suboxone. You're like, oh, well, you get off the boxing. For me, my suboxone was sugar. Like, uh, like I stopped drinking. Little struggle. Oh God, dude, dude. <laughs> like you, like Jason. I lit like literally. It was my first two years maybe three years it was out of control man i used to eat like entire pies like not i don't mean like the little pies i'm talking about a full-grown parental pie and uh so that was a terrible habit for the longest and then i got over that about maybe 18 months ago i got my sugar under control but i still probably eat i'm a vegetarian now so i've been a vegetarian for the last year it's like it's funny because people are like man you don't drink you don't eat sugar now you don't eat meat like you just want to just kill the drill out of your life i'm like (laughs) i'm just trying to eat a lot i'm trying to live as long as possible and little things by little so um but I, when I do eat, I have a tendency to eat a lot of food. I probably overeat every now and then. It's like, ah, I've been pretty disciplined this week. I'm going to eat this entire pizza right now. <laughs> so that's, that's probably a bad habit. Hopefully, I'll, 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 I'll fix that down the road, but I'm not going to worry about it right now. Yeah, uh, well, uh, and and thank you for like for sharing that too, because you know we didn't really touch on that. Like people forget alcohol. Yeah, you know, it's sugar. You're, there's a lot yeah. of sugar being pumped into your body. And I've known many of people that it's got the caused diabetes or affected their diabetes. And uh, I mean, it's this this is a dangerous substance that we put in our body or choose when we imbibe alcohol. People, it's not it's it's not a natural chemical to the to the body. I mean, it's a carcinogen. You hit on it the initial. Yeah. That's why I tell people at forty you should stop drinking because that it's it's like and we didn't even talk about this, but it's so important. Yeah, let's go the there. Reason right? You should stop drinking at forty. It's just like anything. So when your body is younger, like we've all noticed it, right? When you were 18, 19, 20 and you had a hunger hangover, and then you woke up the next morning, you know, maybe six hours, maybe a day, you're back to normal. You get 38, 39, 40. 
that hangover lasts for four or five days. Like you're like, oh, the reason is your body stops breaking down the alcohol as quickly. The acetaldehyde that's in that alcohol, which sits in your body, right? In your liver, because it's older, does not flush it out of your body as fast. So therefore, the liver, the acetaldehyde, the carcinogen is sitting there longer, which greatly exponentially increases your chances of developing cancer. So when you were younger, you drinking not great for you, but nowhere near as harmful and as dangerous as when you get older. I tell these people, it's like a car, right? You get a brand new car and you go out into a field and like, hey, you want to do a bunch of donuts? It's not great for that car, but it's brand new. It's probably going to be okay and not break down. You take a 20-year-old car in, out into a field and try to do a bunch of donuts with it, some shit's going to break. It <laughs> might break permanently, right? That is your body when you try to drink when you're past 40. Something's going to break and you're putting yourself at much greater risk than when you're younger, right? Yeah. And so I tell people... Like, hey, man, don't don't you got to you got to I don't I don't care how much you drink, but at 40, it it should be done, man, because you're you're putting yourself way too much at risk at that age. Yeah, I forget what the statistic is on, you know, long term alcohol abuse and and use in general and the 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 data on potential, how much it raises your potential for liver cancer. Oh and I've, no, I've personally known four people that have had liver cancer, one whom I love and adore very much right now who's putting up the good fight. And sadly, it's what got them to stop drinking. Man. But eventually, you know, it's like they say, Ken, there's no free meals in nature. You know, there's there's two laws that we are laws that we have to face as humans is our societal laws and the laws of nature, because that's laws of nature, baby. It's going to catch up with you. It just that's is. it, man. Listen, <laughs> Father Time is undefeated, as they say, brother. Like, listen, right. I'm 43, man. I, I have my knees. They're just like, listen, dog, <laughs> you don't need to go running anymore. You did that when you were younger. Right. Don't, you don't need to go run anymore, but man. You need to chill. You better get on that Peloton and get on and get some miles on that bike. So, <laughs> so it was like a, a month and a half ago. Um, my kids wanted to go to the park. Took them to the park. I brought my basketball, shooting some hoops, and I went, "Man, I wonder if I could still touch the rim." As a guy, oh god, oh I'm, god, I'm six one. I used to be able to jump straight up, dunk with two hands. I was pretty pretty good at yeah, it. Yeah, that's all. That's you a know? good vertical. That's a good more, vertical. Yeah, I think it was like. 31 inches or something I had yeah. at one point, the uh, vertical leap. And, and, and so I did a running jump and I just barely touched it, but boy, that landing hurt like a motherfucker. I was like, that was the stupidest thing. Listen, I man. Done. Jason, you're lucky you run out there like Aaron Rodgers getting carted off the field, my man, because oh. when you get a certain age and you do not do like things on a consistent basis, and then you try to go do it, you're very likely to blow something, man. Shoot, mm-hmm. I hurt myself walking down the stairs, man. I, I just, I, I don't, I don't. I, I got friends that do pickup basketball, pickup football. None of that. I didn't, I didn't do any of that when I was like 23, 24. Because it just, it doesn't. Unless you're doing it every day, you're really putting yourself at danger. Even if you're doing it every day of hurting something, I'm like, man. I'm not going to be up in, in, creech, in crutches getting surgery and rehab because I wouldn't want to play pickup. Ba- I'm doing <laughs> I'm doing rehab because I want to play pickup basketball. Come on. Man. How ridiculous is that? I, I know. I, I find a new ache and pain just waking up. <laughs> That's it, man. Yeah, I, I listen to my father. Father Tom, undefeated, and I listen to him. That's right. <laughs> uh, again, the book, uh, Bamboozled, How Alcohol Makes Fools of Us All. Um 
Ken, this has been a bl- pleasure. This is where I give you the floor. Anything that you want to share, throw out there, maybe some of the, the wisdom we didn't get a drop in the conversation. Well, I would tell you this. I think you hit on a little bit and you were talking about like, um, you know, when does the bad stuff stop happening? And I tell people, and I want to be clear, and I said this in the book, right? Stop When you stop drinking alcohol, it doesn't solve all your problems. So don't think that's the case. Like just because you stop drinking doesn't mean your life is going to be all of better, right? Everything's going to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect, but it does give you finally the emotional and the mental fortitude to start facing your problems to permanently fix them. Alcohol is a temporary Band-Aid that's just letting you get through them. When you stop drinking, sometimes it's going to get worse before you get better, right? You're so used to going to those social events with alcohol. Guess what? The first time, second time, three, maybe even 10 times you go to it without alcohol, you're going to be anxious as shit. And it's going to be not great. But get through it, my friend. I promise you, fight through it, sweat through it and get better. And then eventually you're going to be so much better than you ever could have been with alcohol because you've built the ability without something externally doing it for you. And then the world is your oyster. The ceiling that alcohol had put on you, that cap, I always say this as well. Alcohol is the great governor of life. Alcohol, and when I say governor, it's like a governor of a car, like a a UPS truck or a school bus. It only can go so fast. So alcohol has a ceiling that it puts on you. So even though your life might not be terrible, it's not as high as it can get. When you take that cap away and you take that governor away, your ceiling has just gone through the roof and you could just, you can do anything way more than you ever thought you could do. Give yourself that chance. It won't be perfect at first. But if you fight through that uncomfortable feeling, that uncomfortable time and get through it, you will be as amazed at the person you're going to be two, three, four, five years from now. It only gets better with time. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health, and trauma to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about.